as we continue our way through the letter of 1 Corinthians for the season of Lent, examining the various problems that troubled that ancient Greek church, I invite you to turn with me, if you would, to chapter 6. We're going to be on page 920. If you grabbed a guest Bible on your way in, those are back there in those little uh, stands by the doors. And you're welcome to, to keep that Bible if you need a Bible or if you just would like to have one in the New Living Translation. Those are our gift to you. So uh, please take advantage of that gift. <clears throat> Excuse me. This, uh, this topic this morning is by no means uh, any church's favorite t- topic to hear addressed. And uh, it's seldom, if ever, any pastor's favorite topic to address. Um, nevertheless, that doesn't make it any less important or urgent. And uh, I wonder if it's that much more urgent and important because it's something we don't like to think or talk about, um, especially when one, when one considers the cultural context for the church in Corinth in Paul's day, as well as the cultural context that you and I find ourselves in today. So um, let's look to God's word here, beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 with verse 12. You say... I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I am allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. You say food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food. This is true, though someday God will do away with both of them. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord And the Lord cares about our bodies. And God will raise us from the dead by his power, just as he raised our Lord from the dead. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scriptures say, the two are united into one. But the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. It's remarkable for me to consider the wide range of extremes represented in the various congregations that the Apostle Paul was responsible for. Take, for example, the vast differences between, say, the the Galatian churches and then the Corinthian churches. You have, on one hand, the, the church in Galatia that was wrestling with the implications of the gospel as it pertains to the law. And so Paul came to them and and he had to write and preach a message of freedom in Christ, freedom from the law. But then you had on the other end of the of the spectrum and in, in the same time frame This church in Corinth, which is on the other end of the spectrum, with their overly free and licentious living. And both are perversions of the gospel. It takes great wisdom for any pastor or any church leader to to rightly navigate the complicated issues that are represented among complicated people. 
especially when those issues begin to touch on those of greatest significance, such as the ones addressed here in our passage this morning from here in chapter 6. Then when you take in, into that, that into consideration, you also have to take into consideration the, the particular Greek philosophical worldview that the church in Corinth had come out of, especially as it pertains to the concept of dualism. You've heard me talk about dualism here before, this philosophical idea that the Greeks had as fundamental to their worldview that basically said that, that matter or that which is visible um, is bad or immoral or temporary, whereas the spirit or the invisible is good and immoral and eternal. And so you have this idea that the the physical part of you is something that is to be, uh, well, you want liberation from. As one Greek proverb went, the body is a tomb. Or as another Greek philosopher once wrote, I am a poor soul shackled to a corpse. As you can imagine, people who have that particular idea are going to do one of two things. They're either going to so punish their body as, so as to you know, suppress any and all physical needs or appetites, or on the other hand, they're just going to endlessly indulge in whatever that they want to do or whatever they feel because there's no moral significance. That's what you're going to get when you have this particular mentality, one of these two extremes. And of course, when you couple to that, this this message of freedom in Christ, you can see very quickly how a, a group of, of Greek minded Christians would just spiral quickly and deeply into deep immorality. Indeed, last week we saw Paul said, hey, I can't believe the reports I'm hearing of what's going on in the life of your church. It's a type of sexual immorality that even the pagans don't do. That's because they've taken their, their dualistic view of the body, they've coupled it with the message of Christian freedom, and they're spiraling out of control. So how does Paul, a pastor... Not just an evangelist. He's a shepherd. He's shepherding souls. He's ministering to the churches. He establishes churches and he returns. He provides for their needs. He preaches the word. He builds them back up. He confronts issues. How does Pastor Paul deal with these Christians? Does he soften his message to them a little bit? Does he beat around the bush? Is he afraid to, to tackle it head on and confront Their ideas and their behaviors, no, he's not afraid at all. He's going to speak right into it, beginning here in verse 12. You say, I am allowed to do anything. Now, the commentators suggest that that's probably a direct quote that the Corinthians took from Paul's own mouth. But what has happened is they've they've taken this, this idea of freedom in Christ, and they've used this expression to become a catchphrase referring to their own sense of a blanket approval to do whatever they wanted to do with their lives. It's not that unlike what we see in a lot of churches today, where you find people who claim the name of Jesus in some form or fashion, but who then indulge in whatever unbiblical behavior or lifestyle they want under the banner that God is love. That's the blanket approval catchphrase of our, of our day. God is love, therefore, because God is love, neither I, nor really anybody for that matter, are under any moral obligation whatsoever. There's no real consequences for my moral, ethical decisions and behaviors. I'm free to do what I want. I'm allowed to do anything, the Corinthians would say. And to this, Paul responds with two quick points. Okay, let's assume for a minute that you are indeed free to do whatever you want. But, verse 12, not everything is good for you. 
God's love, God's forgiveness, and your Christian freedom from the law does not mean that all things are advisable or that all things are beneficial in your walk with God. Not everything you do has a positive result on your life or on the lives of those around you. And then secondly, yes, as it pertains to the law that Christ has abolished, particularly with regard to certain dietary restrictions. I think they're taking perhaps Paul out of context a bit here. But yes, it is true. Paul might say, with regard to those things, I am allowed to do anything. But Paul will then follow that up and say, I will not become a slave to anything. Interesting, isn't it? That in the midst of this discussion about freedom, Paul reintroduces the idea of slavery. And that's because it's possible for one's total preoccupation with their rights and with their freedoms to actually become a slave to them as opposed, a, as opposed to a slave to the Lord Jesus. What happens when Jesus himself calls you to give up something that you are quote-unquote free to do? Are you enslaved to your freedom? Or are you freely enslaved to Christ? That's really chapters 8 through 10 in a nutshell, and we're not going to have time to even be in there during this series because we're, we're jumping straight from chapter 6 to, I think, chapter 11 next week. And then we're going to do our best to try to, to get a couple more of these problems in before we get to Easter, and so we're not going to have time to, to, to look at everything. But, but really, this is chapters 8 through 10 in a nutshell, nutshell here where Paul is basically saying, use your Christian freedom to not be free. In other words, deliberately choose to restrict yourself willingly for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of your brothers and sisters in Christ as, as needed. Interesting, isn't it? Christian freedom is never some absolute freedom. It's freedom from the law, the, the, the restrictions of the law, the, the law as a means of being made right with God. It is freedom from sin, but it's also freedom to submit yourself to the lordship of Jesus. But if we're going to be honest with ourselves and with the text here this morning, I don't think that the real problem in Corinth is a wrong understanding of Christian freedom regarding things they were free to do. No, I think the real problem here in Corinth is their failure to acknowledge the lordship of Christ regarding things they were not free to do. The Bible is very clear about God's intention and design and purpose for human sexuality, which leads Paul to take this, this opportunity here to assert four powerful statements about the human body as it pertains to their sexual immorality. And we're going to look at those four here together this morning, beginning in verse 13. Look in your Bibles again. He says, Our bodies were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies. There's nothing accidental to the, the creator's design. From the first pages in Genesis, all the way into the words out of the mouth of Jesus himself, the Bible is clear about human beings being created in God's own image. In the image of God, he created them. How? Male and female, he created them. This tells me that the maleness and the femaleness of God's creation is neither an accident nor is it incidental. They mean something. God cares about what he created. It means something to him. The binary, complementary nature of human gender and sexuality 
images God in this world. And for that reason alone, if we said nothing else this morning, for that reason alone, the Christian church must stand fast against this tidal wave of alternative gender theory that is consuming the West at every level. A war is being waged, church, at this very moment against language, against nature, against sanity. But it is a war ultimately, and we cannot miss this, against the creator. The one who made us the way he did for a reason. Who called what he made good. Who has purposes for his design. Who cares deeply about the issue. And who promises judgment for those who oppose him. Don't fool yourselves. The apostle writes just a few verses prior to our text. I'm not skipping that paragraph before what we read today. If we were to go back just a few verses back to to verses 9 and 10, don't fool yourselves. You who think you're free to do whatever you want. You who think that because God is love, there are no moral obligations upon your life or consequences for your choices and your decisions. Do not fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin, those who worship idols, and by the way, those two things always go together. Go back to Romans chapter 1, and you see very quickly how mankind, instead of giving their loyalty and their devotion and their worship to God, quickly turned that onto the creation, and what happened next? Sexual immorality. They always go together. Do not be fooled, those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or who commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheat people. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. God takes these matters seriously and so should we. We were made by the Lord, for the Lord, and the Lord cares about what he has made. Secondly, God has eternal purposes for your body. Look at verse 14 with me again. God will raise us from the dead by his power, just as he raised our Lord from the dead. Now we're going to come back to this on Easter. I know, shocker, right? That we would come back to a discussion about resurrection on Easter Sunday morning. But uh, the cat's out of the bag, and I'm afraid you, you already know what's going to happen before we get there. Um, as Paul Harvey would say, now you know the rest of the story. All right, it's going to happen uh, there on Easter Sunday. But for the sake of this morning, note how Paul points to the bodily, re- listen, don't miss the bodily aspect of the resurrection of Jesus. That is as fundamental to orthodox, universal Christianity as any other element of it. It was a bodily resurrection from the dead. And Paul is pointing to that as the pattern of our own resurrection at the end of time. And this view of the body as it pertains to resurrection has implications for our sexual ethics today. Your body is not just a shell. Your body is not just some, you know, hunk of flesh that your soul is trapped in seeking liberation from. Your body is not just some thing to be mistreated on one end or indulged in on the other to then at some point be discarded. No, it will be your body forever. You contain eternity, if you're a believer in Christ today, in your body right now. 
how you use it while you are living has eternal implications. Romans 6, chapter, uh, chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, Paul says, Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. But look at how specific he gets here. It's not just a spiritual faith. It is a physical, spiritual faith that we have. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. You're not just giving God your heart. Here in a, a couple of months, we're going to have our, our annual spring revival, and the speaker that's coming this year is one of my favorite people on the planet. His name is Chuck Elliott. He was my, one of my theology professors in college. He discipled me. He's been one of my closest friends uh, over the years. I absolutely love this man. I can't think of another person who has a greater single influence on my life than he has had, and I can't wait to have him come here. But I laugh when I think about this because he... Um, he once preached a chapel service at a Bible college in Mississippi, uh, and I believe the title was, God Wants Your Body. <laughs> How's that for a little you know, kind of provocative title to get a bunch of college kids' attention? But think about it for a minute. God doesn't just want your heart. Yes, the heart is the core of who you are. It's the, very, it's the inner sanctum of, of, of your personhood and what you believe and what you cherish and what you think and feel. Of course, absolutely. God wants you at the deepest point of who you are. But he doesn't just want that. He wants all of you. Give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. I think Paul is setting up theologically his earth-shaking statement later in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where he says, I plead with you, give your bodies to God because of or in response to all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. In Christ, you and I are a new creation, and God wants our bodies to be the means of concrete service to him now and forever. Number three, your body is the dwelling place of God and his physical presence in the world. It's, it's very simple. The logic goes like this. If you belong to Christ, then, then Christ's spirit dwells within you. That's the great promise of salvation. Not just that our debts are, are forgiven. Thank be to God for that. Not just that he wipes the slate clean, he separates our sins from us as far as the east is from the west, cast them into the sea of forgetfulness. Thank you, God, for, for giving me a clean slate. But that's not the sum total of your salvation. Yes, he does something for you, but he does something in you. And the great gift of, of Messiah, the anointed one, is his own spirit. And Paul says, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God. There in verse 19. Your body is the dwelling place of God himself. And as the logic goes, because his spirit dwells in you, then you therefore are the physical presence of Christ in the world. Verse 15, don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? And by extension to this logic, if we are 
parts of Christ, then we are under the headship of Christ, and the head gives life to and controls the body. To be connected to him, therefore, is to do as he says, no questions asked. That's where we always make sure we connect that Lord, uh, Christ as Savior and as Lord. If he's Savior, then he forgives you your sins, he draws you into the life of God, and he comes to dwell in you. But if he comes to dwell in you, that means you become part of him, and he's the head that controls the body. They always go together. He's not just Savior, and he's not just Lord. He's Savior and Lord. And he's either one, he's either both or nothing to you. But Paul's going to go even deeper. And, and, and I hope that we're all kind of hanging in there together as we, we follow Paul down this really deep dive into this biblical theology of the body. He goes even deeper. He says in verse 17, the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Now, what kind of language is that? When you think of two becoming one, well, that's, that's like marriage language, isn't it? And, and Paul confirms that for us there in verse 16 when he, he quotes Genesis by saying, for the scriptures say the two are united into one. And finally, as we're following Paul in his, his argument here, as he's making a case for sexual purity among the Christian people there in Corinth, and by extension, you and me, we're finally getting down to the heart of things. Because you see, God's purpose in marriage, as we've noticed before, is that it would be the clearest picture in all of created reality of God's eternal purposes. We've talked about this. I hope this is familiar to you. Yes, God gave humanity the gift of marriage, okay, yes, for procreation, so that we could, you know, so the species could continue and, and, and live on and, and flourish and spread and grow. yes. God gave gave us the institution of marriage for procreation. Yes, he gave humanity the gift of marriage um, to be a building block of human civilization. You want to know why all of our civilization seems to be crumbling all around us? It It is directly parallel to the breakdown of family. As the family disintegrates, so society and civil society and civilization itself disintegrates. And God gave marriage to be the building block of human civilization. Yes, God, thank you for the gift of marriage, for the enjoyment of sexual intimacy. Those are all right, those are all biblical, and those are all good things. But God gave humanity the gift of marriage primarily and above and before all else to be a pedagogical tool, something to teach us with. Something to ill, it's like, it's like a, the, the world's greatest object lesson. It's a pointer to what all of creation is even about. Why did God create in the beginning to begin with? Oh, because he had this dream of uniting his creation to himself through his son. And marriage is this beautiful, crystal clear picture of that reality when we look at the complete and permanent oneness between a husband and a wife. That's why the biblical view of the body, the biblical view of human sexuality, the biblical view of the covenant of marriage as one man and one woman for life is so important because it proclaims the church's grand gospel hope and expectation of eternal union with Christ. The very gospel message is at stake when it comes to these matters. 
And so, therefore, church, it is our sacred duty as the people of God to cherish it and to guard it and to practice it and to proclaim it to the world. Lastly, number four. Your body has been bought with a price. Look at the end of the passage I read there, beginning in the second half of verse 19. You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. Not only did he create you and has a purpose for his creation, but he has recreated you. He owns you. Not in some like sadistic, maniacal, tyrannical way. No, he freely gave his life for you. And when we say yes, we're freely giving our lives to him. We belong to him. Our bodies have been bought by the blood of Jesus. Before coming to Christ, the Corinthians were in the bondage of slavery to the flesh. They were in bondage to their self-centered desires and their self-indulgence in their bodily passions. But then along came one who was able to pay the ransom and set the prisoners free. And he did it with his body, given for you. You and I have been set free from the futility and servitude of our former way of life. Our bodies have been bought with a price and they belong to a new master. And he intends that every faculty within you Every dimension of who you are, from top to bottom and inside and out, he intends to use it to express the goodness and glory of God. So, God is creator, redeemer, Lord. He created and he redeemed with a purpose. You and I are his temple, his body, his physical presence in the world. We are to use these bodies to bring him glory now and glory forevermore. Thank you, Paul, for this succinct, direct, head-on, biblical view of the body. But the question that you might be asking is, well, now what? What does it mean for me as a Christian living today in this sexually confused in this immoral culture, one that is becoming increasingly lost and increasingly hostile to biblical truth. What, what do we say now? What does that mean for us? Well, we can say a lot and it, and, and it means a lot, but I'm going to try to be faithful to the time we have left and just give you th- three ways to respond, okay? So we talked about freedom, we talked about the body, and here come your three so what points. Are you ready? Number one. We must stand firm for the biblical view of life, marriage, family, gender, sexuality, and the design and purpose of the body without compromise, without shame, and without fear. Do I need to repeat that, church? We must stand firm for the biblical view of life, marriage, Family, gender, sexuality, and the design and purpose of the body without compromise, without shame, 
and without fear. Now, of course, we do it, church, always with humility and with love. And far too often, sermons like this are preached in a pulpit, on a street corner, in the public square, without those things. And that must never be true of us. Humility and love must never be missing in our, in our proclamation. But at no point must we ever abandon truth. In America, people are free to believe whatever they want to believe about themselves, but that doesn't mean that you and I have to believe and affirm it too. It doesn't mean that we have to be silent, and it definitely doesn't mean that you and I have to pledge fealty to the group thing. On the contrary, church, you and I must have a prophetic witness to the culture that rejects insanity and denounces evil. If not us, then who? Who will do it? A man can never be a woman. Can you believe you and I live in a time where someone has to say that? All sex outside of the marriage covenant of one man and one woman for life is sin. All, all sex. Life begins at conception and the taking of innocent life is murder. And I know by saying these things, the world will say, we're hateful. Friends, it is not hateful to say what is true. Now, you can say it hatefully. You can say these things with hate in your heart. But just because you say these things and believe these things and cling to these things does not mean you are hateful. Do not let them tell you you are hateful. It's not hateful to say these things. In fact, I would argue it's, it's the most loving thing you can say. I'm grieved deeply and increasingly day by day over the world that my children are growing up in. It is vastly different than the one that I grew up in. I think about my own childhood. A distant 30 years ago. By the way, it's, it's, a, it's a blink. You blink and you're old. I'm getting old. It wasn't that long ago that I was a teenager or a a young boy trying to figure out what it means to be a man wasn't that long ago for me and I wish I can't believe I'm saying this. I wish that the biggest threat my kids faced was the presence of pornography on the internet. I wish that was the biggest thing I had to worry about. But this, this day, friends, there is a tireless, all-out assault taking place to redefine reality and to target and indoctrinate the next generation. Now, we have to remember that our fight 
Thank you, Paul, for the, the balance of your wisdom and your teaching. I love the Apostle Paul. We owe so much to him. I can't wait to meet him face to face and thank him for his, his service to the church, to Christ and his church. Thank you, Paul, for reminding me in my own anger and outrage at what's going on in the world. Thank you for reminding me that our fight is not against flesh and blood. As Ephesians 6.12 says, it is not against flesh and blood, it is against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world. It is against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Thank you for that. And I know that saying this will get me labeled as a religious kook. But Satan wants our children and our grandchildren. And if he can't get them in the womb, he'll get them on the internet or in the classroom, or at the movie theater, or on social media. And his goal is not just to confuse. His goal, friends, is to destroy. And that's exactly what is playing out in our culture before our very eyes. An entire generation of hopeless, lifeless young people with no idea anymore of what it even means to be a human being And instead of being led to the truth or offered the counseling and therapy they need, they're being handed over to the butchers to be castrated and sterilized and subjected to all manner of barbaric so-called reassignment procedures that would make Mary Shelley recoil in terror. And it's all for profit. And it's all under this cleverly worded guise of life-saving, gender-affirming care. Church, you and I have to call this for what it is. It is evil. And we cannot sit by in silence or fear while it takes place. We cannot. And you know what else? It's time to stop being nice. The Bible never once tells you to be nice. It tells you to be kind. And kindness is, is not about being polite. Kindness is about loving concern for another. So yes, sometimes to be kind, you have to quit being nice. Was Jesus being nice in the temple when he flipped the tables over in outrage over what they had done to this, his father's house of prayer? Was he being nice? How do you think Jesus feels about drag queens dancing like perverts in front of toddlers? How do you think Jesus feels about LGBT activists like Peter Tatchell? And if you don't know who he is, look him up. How do you think Jesus feels about people like that making a moral case for nine-year-old children to have consensual sex with adults? How do you think Jesus feels about that, church? You know, we're living in a time where things we once thought were absolutely incomprehensible and could never happen in our lifetimes, they're right around the corner. And don't think for a second that the push to legalize things like pedophilia are not the next step in the journey. It's coming, friends. It's coming. If it's not already here. And it's time for us to stop being nice and fight for the innocent and fight for the weak and fight for the vulnerable and fight for the truth. So stand firm and do not give in another inch, no matter the cost.
Secondly, yes, we need to be a community of truth, but we also need to be a community of God's grace and love. And as I said a moment, a few moments ago, not only can we be both, but we must be both, and I don't think you can be both. I don't think you can be one without being the other. You have to be both. You cannot just stand for truth at the expense of love, and you cannot stand for love at the expense of truth. You and I, as the people of God, do not exist in this world to simply denounce what we are against. We have to also champion and practice and offer what we are for. I heard a great analogy from Sam Alberry on the Gospel Coalition podcast sometime last year. He said this. is really helpful to me. He says, people were created for rich intimacy, and they will search for it even if it's bad for them. Think about that for a minute. Rich intimacy is what people were created for. We're created in the image of God. God, by definition, is social. He is persons in communion. That is the image you and I are created in. There's the deepest longing of the human heart is to know and be known in love. To be in relationship with another. That is where we find who we actually are. That is where our identity is. That is where we understand our personhood. You can't be a person in isolation. There is no person of God in isolation. It is always persons in communion. To be a person, to be in reality, is to be in communion. And people are searching for intimacy and communion, even if they have to search for it in all the wrong places. And, and uh, Alberry says, by way of parallel, People eat bad food because they have to eat. (laughs) They're going to eat something because they're hungry. The question is, will will we be the kind of church that offers the good food that people crave and need? What are we offering? Just rejection and outrage? Moral, righteous indignation? No, we offer more than that. We'll call evil for what it is, but we're also going to extend love and mercy and compassion. And the question is, can this place be both? Can this place be both? Can we freely offer the good food of God's truth and love? Can we be a community that welcomes the sinful and the broken just as they are? Just as they are whatever their skin color is, whatever their sexual orientation is, whatever the color of their hair is or their piercings or whatever they, can we welcome people just as they are here? But then do it without ever compromising the essential truths that they need to hear? There are real people of goodwill who are genuinely struggling. They're not all, you know, utterly depraved activists like some of the the people we see on TV. There's people who are struggling and they're not just out there. They're right in here. There are people struggling with these things in here. And this must be a place where people who are struggling and need help can find genuine compassion and genuine community and genuine grace and hope for healing and transformation. And lastly, number three, in our response to this this teaching from Paul, you and I must pursue holiness. Run from sexual sin. 
the apostle commands us. You know, every time I read that, I think of that scene from The Return of the King when uh, <clears throat> Denethor, the steward of Gondor, has kind of lost his mind and when he sees the, the, the hordes of Mordor's army on his doorstep in his craze, he shouts to his troops. Do you remember what he said? Flee for your lives! <laughs> well, this is, not, this is not the urgent appeal of a crazed man. This is the desperate, passionate cry of a pastor. Flee, flee with your lives. Run from it, church. Desperately. That verb there in the Greek is a present imperative, which means do it now. Do it continuously. Don't just do it once, only to fall back into where you were yesterday. Do it now, do it continuously, do it habitually. May it define your life, not that you once ran from sexual sin, but that you are running from sexual sin. With reckless abandon. Stop dabbling in it. Stop playing around with it. Quit pretending it doesn't matter. Quit putting it off for another day. Paul says, flee from it with all that you are. And if there are strongholds in your life where you are a captive today, well, guess what? It just so happens that Jesus is in the business of setting the prisoner free. No matter the struggle, no matter the temptation, no matter the addiction, the proclivity, or the orientation, Jesus Christ is the answer. I read verse 9 a few moments ago, and I will, I will acknowledge, with God as my witness, I acknowledge that 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10 are among the hardest verses, if not the hardest verses, in the entire New Testament. It's hard truth. Hard truth, and it hurts. And it's scary. It's scary. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. But we can't just stop at verse 10, can we? We started at 12. We went back to 9 and 10 and we skipped 11 for a reason because I want to bring you back here now. Look at verse 11 and see and hear the hope of the gospel. Paul says that's what some of you were. That's what you were. But you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God. And we say, how? How does something like that happen? By calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. If you and I have any hope in this life to stand for truth with integrity, any hope to bear witness to the power of God to transform and heal others. Any hope to overcome our own struggles and to be set free. It is through faith in Christ alone and by the power of the Holy Spirit of God alone. Can you and I be such a people today who unapologetically stand firm for truth? Who will be a community 
of mercy and grace and love? And who will pursue with reckless abandon that holiness without which no man can see the Lord? We can be. And for the sake of the gospel, and for the sake of our witness, and for the sake of our nation, and the sake and for the sake of our children, we must. We must. Let us pray. At any point in the remainder of this service, you are free to come and pray yourself up here. And it can be for anything that the Lord has put on your heart. Maybe you need to come and repent of a particular sin. Maybe you need to pray for boldness and courage. Maybe you want to come and and pray for a, a friend, a loved one, a neighbor. Oh, I would love to see a whole church that'd be willing to pray for their so-called enemies. Can we pray for, for the people who are on the other side of the political aisle from you? The activist? The person that you've targeted as enemy number one in your heart? Can you pray for them today? Now's the time. You want to pray for our children? I beg you. I beg you to pray for our children and for their parents. We're trying so hard to raise godly children in this society. Will you pray for them right now? Will anybody come and pray? Anybody? God, we beg you to move among your people to get us out of our seats, to get us out of our distractions and our superficial stuff that we occupy our minds with and, and motivate us to get into the fight somehow. And if it's not praying in church, then where, where will it be? Lord, move among your people and show us what it means to stand for truth, but to do it in love. Lord, we can't do that on our own. We mess up every time when left to ourselves. On my own, I don't have the courage to stand in the face of of persecution and stand for the truth. On my own, I don't have the ability to speak truth to someone who's coming after my children's minds and hearts with love. I cannot do it, God. We need you. We need you. Holy Spirit, fill the, the, the people in this space with your own life and your own mind and your own heart so that we hate what you hate and we love what you love. And we be about your business and quit, quit playing church or playing nice or being whatever that's opposed to what you want us to be. Lord, may we be everything you've called us to be and do everything you've called us to do for the sake of the gospel today. And it's going to be different for each one of us. No two, there's no cookie cutter response. Every single person here who has any sensitivity to God at all is hearing your spirit talk. I know it. Because this is the issue of our day. And we can't beat around the bush. We have to face it head on. Lord, use us as you will. Not just once, but until you return or call us home, whichever comes first. Lord, would you 
Would you have your way in our midst? In Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna continue in a spirit of prayer and in response as the worship team leads us in a closing song. I want you to listen to these words. These words are penned recently for this moment. And the song is new. You've probably never heard it before and it's gonna be hard to maybe follow along, but if you can't sing it, at the very least, look at the words and listen to what it says. And let's be a people for whom it is said that Christ is our life and our identity. Amen? Mm -hmm. Amen. Pastor Jeff? Amen.